So Matthew chapter 17, though, verse 24, and we'll go to verse 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Lord, as we look to what seems like an unusual text that seems kind of confusing and out of place to us, in our learning from Matthew about this gospel of Christ. Lord, would you help us to understand it? Help us to see the big picture. Help us to see more clearly this morning who Jesus is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a text that if we weren't preaching straight through Matthew, I would be tempted to skip it. Um, And yet, if we did... You have to know this. If we skip this text, we would be missing an enormous claim that Jesus is making about himself. Jesus is saying here, and we're going to see this more clearly as we move through it, but the big idea here in this, these, these, these four short verses is that he is the new temple. He's replacing the temple. That that ancient place where Israel went to worship, the place where sins were atoned for, the place where God's presence was with his people, that place that for hundreds of years was at the very heart of Judaism. That temple, that temple was becoming irrelevant, obsolete, and Jesus is replacing it with himself. That's the center of this morning's text. And then Jesus' application is what he and Peter ought to do in light of that reality. And we'll see that. This will all, it'll all make sense as we, as we go through this. But before we get there, we have to deal with more of Peter being Peter, don't we? You might have noticed that for the last several weeks of our study in Matthew, the Apostle Peter has, has been more, more prominent than he was previously. In the first half of the gospel, in, in chapters 1 through 13, Peter is only mentioned kind of incidentally. He's mentioned when he's called as an apostle, and, and then there's this one time when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. But that's it. We don't hear much from Peter. He doesn't ask many questions. He doesn't say much. Not much attention is given to him by Matthew as Matthew's telling the gospel story. He's just one of the 12 disciples. But starting in chapter 14, and kind of in every, actually in every chapter after that, we see Peter a lot. Because what happened in chapter 14, there was this really pivotal moment. For those of you that were, that were here with us at that time, you'll remember that 
Jesus had walked out on water. He'd come across the Sea of Galilee to the disciples who were in the boat. And then Peter says to Jesus, command me to come out on the water, to walk on the water. Jesus commands him. Peter walks out on the water and then begins to sink because he saw the wind, Matthew tells us. He began to doubt. And and what we saw in that passage was that, that the realities of the world around Peter were causing him to doubt who Jesus was. And so if you remember, Jesus reaches down, he pulls up Peter, he rescues him, saves him. And, and I think we could, looking back, we can see now that that incident was a foreshadowing of the rest of Peter's interactions with Jesus throughout Matthew's gospel. Peter wants to be a part of this Messiah movement. He wants to be a part of what Jesus is doing, but he, he can never shake the world. He can't get rid of of the way that he thinks about the world and the way that the world operates. He views Jesus and Jesus' ministry through an entirely worldly lens. And and Peter is so confident in in the way that he sees the world that he keeps opening up his mouth, doesn't he? He makes sure that others know his confidence in the way he sees the world. And Jesus has to correct him again and again and again again sometimes forcefully, sometimes gently. Peter provides for us teachable moments, and Jesus provides the teaching. And Jesus willfully teaches Peter, because as we saw also in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is going to build his church on the work of Peter and the other apostles. So so as you read Matthew's gospel, and this is how I've been learning to read it as I study it and, and meditate on it every week, realize that Peter is a stand-in. He's a real person, but he's also a stand-in for all of us who identify with Christ as, as Christians, living in the world. He's in the world. He still has a worldly way of understanding things, and yet Jesus is shaping him to be useful to the church, and that's what Jesus is doing with each one of us. So this week is no different. In verse 24, the collectors of this two drachma tax, and we'll talk about that in a minute, ask Peter if his teacher, Jesus, pays this tax. And what does Peter say? In verse 25, one word is all it takes to put his foot in his mouth. Yes. That's all he says. It only takes one word sometimes, doesn't it? Peter does not say what he should have said. He doesn't say, I don't know, let me ask him. He doesn't say, ask my teacher yourself. He's right here. He just says, yes. Peter gives Jesus' position on this tax, probably not even knowing what Jesus actually believes about this tax. Now, this two drachma tax, as, as Matthew calls it, is a voluntary offering. This is, this is the part that, that you and I didn't know coming into this week. This is a voluntary offering put into place by the religious leaders. It's not a governmental tax. All right, we'll talk about that later in Matthew. This is not that. This is a temple tax. It's a religious tax. This money goes to the temple in Jerusalem and all the operations that surround the temple. It helps pay the people who work in the temple. It helps pay for the upkeep of the temple. And the basis for this tax comes from way back 
in the book of Exodus when God instructed his people to build the tabernacle. This fee to be charged to God's people was put into place to support the tabernacle operations. And you find that back in Exodus chapter 30, and there it's called the half-shekel tax. Half-shekel. And here we are in Matthew 17, we're in the first century, Roman-occupied Israel, and the equivalent to that is two drachma, or about, would be two days' wages in those days, and still would be today. Today, And the people who were generally expected to pay this are male Jews, so the men, aged 20 and up. Right? So that's the, that's the general expectation, because that's what Moses said back in Exodus 30. The Pharisees... Remember, that's the most popular of the Jewish, what we're calling denominations at the time. The Pharisees proudly pay this tax because they consider it their patriotic duty. Their identity is, is in their, ethnic, their Jewish ethnicity, and to them, this is a, a heritage tax. We're, we're proud Jewish people living in Roman-occupied Israel, and we pay to support the temple. They, the, the Pharisees, are actually the party who reinstated this tax. It had gone many, many hundreds of years without being charged of God's people after the tabernacle. But the Pharisees said, we should do this again. We believe that this is how we can best keep the law of God. The Sadducees, on the other hand, this is another group that we've sort of learned about in Matthew. The Sadducees are the more, the more politically connected, the more Roman-friendly group of, of Jews. They don't pay this tax. The Pharisees pay it. The Sadducees do not pay this temple fee. They don't believe it should be paid because they don't believe that a law written about the tabernacle should apply to the temple. Are you starting to kind of see the setting that's going on here? So this this charge for temple upkeep is kind of a divisive issue during those days. And so you can see then that the collectors of this offering, when Jesus and Peter and, and the entourage come back into Capernaum, when, when they get there, the collectors are, are asking more than what it seems like. They, they are, they're interested in what this famous teacher Jesus that, that, that everyone has heard of, they're interested in what he thinks of this, this fee, this duty to the temple. They're asking if, if Jesus is on the Pharisee side or if he's on the Sadducee side. They're also asking if he considers himself a rabbi because rabbis and priests are considered exempt from this tax. Add to that the complication that there's this rumor going around, word on the street, that Jesus disrespects the temple to begin with. And we saw that way back in chapter 12. He said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So there's a lot of complicated factors going into this little question does your teacher pay the two drachma tax? It's more, it's more than, than just this, hey, Peter, here's your friendly reminder that your, you and your teacher haven't paid the quarterly dues to the temple yet. This is more than that. This is more than a collection request. It's a loaded question. right? And Jesus is always aware of these loaded questions, and Peter is aware that this is a loaded question. So, so when Peter answers the question for Jesus... Without asking Jesus, Peter is making what is really a political decision on Jesus' behalf. He's placing Jesus, by saying yes, he's placing Jesus in the majority culture 
putting Jesus on team Pharisee as someone who supports the temple and doesn't ruffle feathers. Whether through fear of man, we don't know why Peter did this, whether it's through fear of man or just to protect Jesus from the, from the consequences of saying no, we don't know. Fact is, Peter has spoken on Jesus' behalf and he's given the wrong answer. And, and, and just as, as, a way, as an aside, as a little application, we, we've seen this a number of times. But I want to remind you again, because again, I have to remind myself of this. You and I do not get to decide on our own, what Jesus believes about something. Whether that's something like this temple tax or something more controversial in our own day and age, some hot-button issue like abortion or gender or marriage or money, whatever it is, our obligation as Jesus' representatives is to simply say what his word says, not to try and keep Jesus out of trouble. He's God. He can fend for himself. Right? We don't have any, any latitude to do otherwise. So, so to claim to be a representative of Jesus and to misrepresent him, that's wrong. And Peter was wrong to do what he did. The, the correction, though, is gracious. Je- Jesus waits until he and Peter are inside the house before correcting him. Did you notice that in verse 25? Jesus doesn't outright embarrass Peter. Look at verse 25. So they're outside the house. They're coming into Capernaum. The, the, the people ask Peter the question. Peter answers it, and then they go inside the house. And when they came into the house, verse 25, Jesus spoke to him first. He addresses this issue immediately, doesn't he? Before Peter has a chance to, to ask Jesus about it, before Peter begins to make excuses for what he said or to explain himself, Jesus addresses Peter first. And, and Jesus says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And then verse 26, And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. The sons are free. And that's it. That's the lesson. At least that's the first part of the lesson. Now let's get down to what he means by this. And I, I, I just want you to know this is going to take some work, all right? Because we aren't Jews in first century Palestine hearing Jesus say these things. We have to kind of work to put ourselves there in that setting. So, so let's look first at the analogy. The analogy that Jesus points to in order to teach this lesson, and just think of your SAT work, is kings and their kingdoms. So in a monarchy, when the king levies taxes on the people, who pays the taxes? Who owes? Do the members of the royal family pay those taxes to support their own lifestyles? Or do the others, the people who live in the kingdom? And, and the, the answer is obvious. The people of the kingdom pay. The people whom the king rules over, they're the ones who pay. That's That's the easy part of this. The tricky part is seeing how in the world this relates to this two drachma temple tax. Jesus has drawn out the comparison. Kings of the earth are to people they rule over as the king of heaven is to the people he rules over. Do you see the analogy? Now let's do the work. And where earthly kings have non-family members pay the tax, the idea, the conclusion that Jesus is drawing here is that the heavenly king has non-family members pay the tax. 
And, and who is Jesus pointing to here? Who is, who is that in our context? Well, it's your everyday Jew. Common Jewish people in Galilee, in Judea, Jerusalem, all the towns Jesus has visited, they are the ones, Jesus is saying, who are obligated to pay that temple tax. By contrast, Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't. He's not obligated. And while that seems kind of innocent at first, think about it. When Jesus says the sons are free, the sons don't pay, what is Jesus saying that the Jews of that day are? Well, they're not considered sons. And that's troublesome. Because biblically, historically, Israel was always thought of as God's son. In Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. And in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And he's talking about the nation of Israel. And if Israel is God's son, track with me here, follow me, then why is Jesus saying they still owe the temple tax if the sons don't owe the tax? You seeing the, the problem? That's a problem. But there's a solution. You might have picked up on this theme already in the gospel. But here's a statement that Paul will make for us. It's something that, that Jesus makes really explicit in John's gospel. All Israel, not all Israel, is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Though they're descended from Abraham genetically, they aren't all descended from Abraham spiritually. Way back in Matthew 3, we saw this. John the Baptist called the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers. They were offspring of the serpent. And he also told them, Matthew 3, verse 9, this is John the Baptist speaking, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So that, that lineage that the Jews can trace all the way back to Abraham, Jesus is showing isn't what's important. It never really was. The strength of Judaism was never in Abraham to begin with. It was in God's promises to Abraham. So, so while God considers Israel his son in the Old Testament, he did that because of his promises to Abraham. And his promises to Abraham were always going to be fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. God's glory was always going to be made known through his son. So the, the question then for any Jew living in that day when Jesus is walking the earth is not whether they can trace their lineage to Abraham, but, but whether or not they belong to the son of the promise, Jesus the Messiah. Is their identity in the Messiah the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel? Or is their identity in their ethnicity? You see the issue? For those who have rejected Jesus, their identity is not in Messiah, their true king, the son of God, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, 
Rather, their identity is in their ethnicity, worldly Israel. And Jesus is here saying, they are strangers. They are the others. They are not true sons of God. And so, they should keep on paying dues to the temple. They owe the Jesus and anyone whose faith is in Jesus the Messiah, the true son of God, they are free. They're free from paying the tax to the king of heaven to maintain his house because they're sons. That's that's a big statement. It's a big claim, isn't it? That's the surface level argument that Jesus is making here. But what does that even mean? (laughs) Right? That, That means that God's temple at that time was supposed to be supported by people who weren't really believers. And that's That's where we really start to get to the point of what Jesus is getting at here. In order to really understand this, we have to take a close look at what this tax is. Way back in Exodus 30. So I want you to start turning to Exodus 30, okay? And while you're turning there, I'm going to give you more context for Exodus. So we have to do context for Israel in the first century. We have to do context for Israel way, 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 way back before that, when they first came to be. The tabernacle, that was that giant tent that Israel built in order to keep the Ark of the Covenant, and the temple that was later built by Solomon that followed it, and the temple rebuilt after Israel returned from exile. These were the places where God was present with his people. All right? So God is everywhere. We know that. He's always been everywhere. But he met with his people, particularly he met with the high priest in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and in the temples that followed. And so to to honor that, to hold that place or those places as as paramount, God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 30 about this mandatory offering to maintain that place. So look at verse 16. I want you to see this with your own eyes because it'll start to make more sense to you. Exodus 30 verse 16, The Lord commands Israel, you shall take the atonement money. Now that's the tax, but look at what God calls it. He calls it atonement money. That's a a covering, covering for your sins. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. That's that tax. That's the two drachma tax. That's what's at issue here in in Matthew 17. It's a fee to support the tabernacle, the place where Israel's sins are atoned for, so that Israel could continue to be in God's presence. That whole atonement system, the sacrificial system, was part and parcel to the old covenant. God had brought Israel near to him, and they had to keep the law and atone for their sins and their uncleanness in order to stay near to him. And this tax was a part of that system. But things change with Jesus, don't they? That's the whole point of the New Testament the new covenant. 
things are changing with Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham and to Isaac and to David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to the prophets. That's what Matthew's been showing us in chapters 1 through 14, especially. He is the fulfillment. Jesus is also the eternal Son of God. And in his divinity, he is the very, listen carefully, he is the presence of God. Jesus is the presence of God. In him, Colossians tells us, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus is way greater than that temporary tabernacle that was being built in Exodus 30. He's far more glorious than either of the temples that were built. Jesus is the new temple. And as Bob read for us earlier, the latter glory of the temple the glory of the temple that is in Christ is greater than the former. With the old tabernacle and the old temple, all men, 20 and older, had to make payments in order to maintain the temple and the sacrificial system. That's the tax. And God himself, that was to make atonement. But Jesus, what's he been showing us the last few weeks? Where is he going? Again, he's going to Jerusalem. What's he going to do there? He's going to die. And be raised up. Because he's been telling us this, but he's been telling it because he will atone for the sins of God's people. Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice. And and we don't pay for that, do we? There are no fees to maintain Jesus. Under the new covenant, it is in Jesus, the true son, the true Israel, that the rest of us are made sons and daughters. And we don't give money to see that happen. When we take offerings here, this has nothing whatsoever to do with our salvation. We don't give money to see ourselves made sons and daughters. Jesus Christ does that for us. We give nothing. We can't give anything. We owe nothing. Jesus paid it all. He gave his life. So so what we're seeing then kind of unfolding for us here is the presence of God is no longer in a place. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in that temple that they're taxing people for. It's not in the land of Israel. The presence of God is in a person. Jesus, Messiah. So there is no longer... And we know this now, there's no longer any building anywhere and will never be a building again where the presence of God is localized. Never again will there be a holy place. That was the old covenant. God's presence with the people in the new covenant is Jesus himself, all right? It is Jesus himself, and Jesus is creating in himself a holy people. Holy place, old covenant, holy people in Christ, new covenant. This building that we worship in, this is a place of convenience, right? It's a roof over our heads, keeps the sun off of our heads, keeps the rain off of us when it rains. The presence of God is not in the physical structure of this building. It never was. There's nothing holy about the stucco on the outside. There's nothing holy about the carpet. There's nothing holy about the walls or the windows, the roof, the doors. Nothing. 
The presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ has been given to the people that he's creating, the church. And that presence is given through the person of the Holy Spirit whom he sent. Let me kind of just clear this all up here, all right? Jesus Christ died. He was the presence of God. He is the presence of God. He died. He was raised again. He ascended into heaven. And then what did he do? He sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, down to earth. And the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again as new creations in Christ. In Christ. We are formed in Christ as new creations as the body of Christ. That's, where, that's who we are now. A people who are in union with Christ. So wherever God's people are, his presence is. Buildings and places no longer have anything to do with God's glory being made known throughout the earth. And we're going to see that really clearly in Matthew chapter 18. But just as a quick application, this is why when we together as a church were meeting outside on the patio, as inconvenient as it was, we were no less Christ's church. We didn't cease to be the body of Christ because we weren't inside a building. The presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit was with us outside as he is with us inside. The presence of God is with churches who are meeting in fields right now and in parks right now. He's with churches who meet in middle school cafeterias with pictures of celebrities on the wall. And he's with churches who are meeting in houses secretly because they have to. God is present in Jesus Christ through the Spirit wherever his people are gathered. But that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves, getting way ahead of the gospel story here. We know these things because we've read ahead in Matthew, and we've seen the Spirit sent in Acts, and we've seen the church born in Acts, and we've seen the letters written to the church and the rest of the New Testament. But in this house with Jesus and Peter here in Capernaum, on the day that, that Peter spoke for Jesus, nobody, nobody knows what's coming but Jesus. Jesus has hinted at it. He, he showed them that the age of the temple is coming to an end. He showed them that he is the presence of God. He's told them already he's going to die and be raised. He's told them several, several times, but they aren't, they aren't putting all the pieces together yet. They're not seeing the end of the old atonement system and, and, and the beginning of, of freedom in Christ. They're not seeing that. And if the disciples don't understand that yet, the collectors of this tax certainly aren't going to be able to understand that, are they? So what does Jesus do? Jesus, knowing all of that stuff that's coming, knowing why he came, and yet now not being the time to explain that to everybody, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 27. And if his disciples, let's see, however, not to give offense to them, this is Jesus, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, <clears throat> and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So the sons are free. He's taught us that. He, when we, we understand a little bit more about what that means now, the sons of the kingdom don't, know, don't owe anything to that old covenant system. Jesus especially doesn't owe anything because he's going to give his life. 
He is totally exempt from this tax. But in order not to give offense to them, he says, we'll pay the tax. We'll pay. Now, now we've seen Jesus very willingly give offense, haven't we? Over and over again. Jesus does not have any qualms about offending people. They take offense at who he eats with. They take offense at what he eats. They take offense at when he eats. They take offense at his Sabbath breaking. They take offense at his healing people. There's very little Jesus has done that people haven't taken offense at. So why is he putting the brakes on here? Why now? Well, here's the thing. The areas that Jesus has given offense up to this point, all of those are key to who he is. They're key to his ministry. They're key to the gospel announcement that the age of the Messiah has arrived. People need to know he's the Messiah. They're offended by it, yes, but people need to know it. If Jesus secretly, instead of publicly, healed people, or if he only ate with Pharisees and the religious leaders and the popular people, well, he wouldn't be fulfilling his ministry. God has given him an assignment. He's doing it, regardless of whether it offends people or not. But this tax... This temple tax, whether he pays this temple tax or not, it doesn't have much bearing on his earthly ministry. He's taught Peter why he doesn't owe it. That's what's important. Because Peter is going to be very, very influential in the founding of the church. So Peter needs to know who Jesus is in relation to that temple that's still going to be around for a while. He's taught Peter that. The disciples need to know that the temple is one day going to be obsolete and Jesus is replacing it with himself. They have to know that because in 40 years, in 70 AD, the temple's going to be gone and they need to know how to deal with that. The reality of the temple going away, though, they've got 40 years. They've got 40 years. Jesus has got one more month of ministry. And not paying this tax would cause an unnecessary commotion that would have hindered Jesus's message. That's key. So in order to not cause offense, in order to not put any obstacles in front of his message, he pays. And in order to show that the money isn't the issue at all, has nothing to do with whether they can afford it. Remember, Jesus is the new and better Adam. He is the one who has dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So he tells Peter, that money can be found anywhere. It can be found in that first fish you catch coming out of the sea. So if Peter's worried about his ability to, to afford this tax, Jesus shows him the money's not the issue, Peter. God will provide the funds. The issue isn't the money. That's the point of the miracle. The issue is whether it is owed and whether they should pay. It's not owed. They should pay. Why? Because Jesus doesn't want to create an obstacle to the proclamation of the gospel. And that carries over to us really clearly, doesn't it? That should be our attitude as well. And we see that idea taught over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Just look at the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, in chapter 9, Paul says he knows that the Corinthian people are used to seeing these these popular speakers, the philosophers, the religious teachers from all these different sects, they're, they're using their position whenever they come into town to burden the people to pay for their expenses. These teachers lived 
at the people's expense in Corinth. But when Paul came to Corinth, he paid his own way. He didn't want the people to think of him as a talking head or a sage. He wanted the gospel to be what they heard from him. He wanted them to know his message was unique. And he wanted to do that with as little distraction as possible. And and, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, he asks that question, is it it my right to be paid for the proclamation of the gospel? And, And it is, he says. It is his right to receive payment for his work in the gospel. He could have required that they feed him and provide him housing while he was there. But he chose not to in order that he may not cause them to stumble. He worked a side job in order to be able to provide for himself. He had the right to be supported. He turned it down because his message was more important than his right. In Romans chapter 14, Paul addresses an issue that the church in Rome is experiencing. Some people believe they have the right to drink wine and eat meat knowing that it might have been sacrificed to idols. Might have. And Paul says, yeah, you do have that right. But exercising that right is not as important as loving your brother or sister in Christ. So if what you eat or drink may cause your brother to stumble, don't do it. And that word stumble, obstacle, exact same word that Jesus is using here, scandal on. We don't want to cause our brothers to stumble by exercising our rights. So what's the point? Well, your rights and my rights are nowhere near as important as our proclamation of the gospel. In fact, our freedoms have been given to us not for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel. And that has all sorts of bearing on the Christian life. A pastor friend of mine was offered a a used Mercedes as his personal car. No strings attached. Someone was getting rid of one. He didn't have to pay a dime for it. Did he have the right to accept that car? Well, yeah, he has a right. It's a free car. But he turned it down. Why? Well, even though the car was offered to him in a time of need, what does it look like when a pastor drives a Mercedes? He didn't want to create an obstacle to the gospel. Last time I was in Zambia, it was hot, really hot, and and sunny. Like really bright, not a cloud in the sky. And I, being an American, wore sunglasses because that's what I do when I want to keep the sun out of my eyes. And a friend of mine, a missionary there, told me quietly, it's considered kind of showy and arrogant to wear sunglasses in Africa. So I took them off. I, I, did, I didn't put them back on for the duration of the trip. I left them in my room. Now, did I have right, the right to wear sunglasses? Sun was in my eyes. It was getting a headache. Yes, I had that right. But encouraging those brothers in the Lord was more important. Are you starting to see how this works? Sometimes when we exercise our personal freedoms, we unnecessarily create an obstacle to others. Whether that's an obstacle to Christian unity and the display of Christian unity that we are to show to the world around us, or an obstacle to the message of the gospel going out. These issues don't come up all the time, but there are five areas, I would say, 
they come up a lot. Five particular areas, and, and here's, here's five areas we have to be careful with. What we eat, what we drink, how we entertain ourselves, how we spend our money, and what we wear. Those are things that are kind of like everyday life. And, and all, all, all of those things have an effect on how people view us and how people view Jesus Christ in us. And if you're wondering, okay, well, how do I not cause offense in those areas? Just think about it for a moment. How, how, do, we, how do we go about our way representing Christ to others? Think about just what we wear as an example. If, if what you wear, I want to be careful here because this goes for men and women. All right, women get picked on a lot for this one, but it counts for men too. If what you wear is, is showing to others that you are loose and available, what does that say about Jesus Christ? We, we do want to show that Jesus is available, but not like that, right? That, that's a joke. It's okay to laugh. All right? if, what, if what we drink shows to others that, that we are given to drunkenness, what does that say about Jesus Christ? If, if how we entertain ourselves communicates to others that Jesus is not at all concerned with, with what we're consuming with our eyes or how, what the things that we celebrate, the things that allow us to kind of break loose. What is that communicating about Jesus Christ? And, and if your first thought is, is, Dustin, it seems like you're talking about what other people think. And it doesn't matter what other people think. I can do what I want so long as I don't hurt anybody because that's my right. Well, then you are missing the point entirely. As a Christian, listen, as a Christian following Jesus' example here, we're being taught to care what other people think, aren't we? Especially when it comes to what they think about Jesus. Jesus cared what people thought of him. He wanted them to know he was the Messiah. What people believe about Jesus is the difference between eternal life and eternal damnation. Jesus cared enough about what people thought of him to inconvenience himself and Peter and pay this silly tax, a tax they had no obligation to pay. That, that was just peanuts in compared to what he was accomplishing on earth. He cared enough to make sure that his actions would not become an unnecessary controversy. Jesus absolutely cared what people thought of him. The question for you and the question for me as Christians is do we care what people think about Jesus? If you do not care how others view Jesus Christ when they observe you and what you do, then I'm going to be very blunt. You are not representing Christ, you're representing yourself. Let me say that again. If you don't care how others view Jesus Christ when they observe you, then you aren't representing Christ. You're representing yourself. So we as Christians have been given freedom in Christ, not for freedom's sake, not for our sake, but to exercise those freedoms for the sake of of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Let me just summarize this for us. Our calling as Christians 
is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to proclaim his gospel, his kingdom, his kingship, and to live as citizens of his kingdom, new creations in him. And in doing that, we willfully, every day, give up our rights for the sake of that message, regardless of the cost. That's the calling. The, the cover of that cost is found in first fish we find. And ultimately, the cover of that cost is paid by Jesus Christ himself. For the sake of his message, that's our duty, Christian. 